The Tom Woods Show, episode 1300. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you've ever thought about creating and selling your own online course, well, remember your host here has a teensy-weensy bit of experience creating online courses. So I've actually put together some resources for you, a free report, plus a step-by-step video training series walking you through everything you need to do. Doesn't cost you a thing. Pick it all up at tomwoods.com slash makecourses. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. We are exactly 700 episodes away from the Tom Woods Show 2000th episode extravaganza. I have no idea what I'm going to do for that one, given that we did the dad jokes and the malice face-off and the roast at the 1,000th episode event. I don't know what uh, I'll do for the next one. If you never saw the 1,000th episode, by the way, this is some fun weekend viewing for you. Just go to tomwoods.com slash 1,000, you know, as a number, 1,000, and you'll find the YouTube video of it. You really should watch the video. It's great, great fun. We had such a big, enthusiastic crowd. If only there had been mics over the crowd, you would have heard that the cheers were even louder than they sounded because there was no mic to pick them up. But anyway, what an amazing time. So anytime I have a round number episode like this, I get nostalgic and I think back and I also think ahead. I'm talking today to Justin Moore. In fact, this is my recent appearance on The Justin Moore Show. Justin Moore, uh, last name is spelled M-O-H-R, is a farmer and a young guy and a really, really bright libertarian. And I might also mention that when it comes to karaoke singing, he can give Bob Murphy a run for his money. And we talk about a wide array of topics. And I was very, very happy about how this particular appearance turned out. I do say in the episode you're about to hear that there's some doubt about whether or not ContraCruise.com will have been updated to have the information about the 2019 Contra Cruise. Well, it has indeed been updated, and you can find information about our trip to Alaska in 2019 at ContraCruise.com, and we will be adding an updated video. We still have the video from the first Contra Cruise to give you the flavor of it, but we've got a lot of footage from the last one, and so we're going to have a whole new video and maybe even a series of videos coming up very soon. But at least there right now, you can get the idea of how great it is. So here we go. If you like what you hear from Justin, you can listen to more episodes of The Justin Moore Show at justinmoreshow.com. Remembering that Moore is spelled M-O-H-R, justinmoreshow.com. Here we go. Tom Woods, welcome to The Justin Moore Show. Thank you, Justin. Glad to be here. It is great to have you, and I just saw you just about two months ago. I can't believe it's been almost two months already. Uh, We were on the last Contra cruise, and actually I want to get to you a little bit later in the episode here. We can talk about what's in store for the next cruise. Okay, Tom, so let's just jump right into it here. I mean, there's a lot of craziness going on with the economy. Uh, We have a a president like Donald Trump. He's a guy who said he's going to drain the swamp. Well, here we're still seeing the national deficits over – you know, a trillion dollars this year. It doesn't seem like a swamp's really being drained. But, you know, there's libertarians on both sides of the issue uh, when it comes to Donald Trump, that he's good, he's bad, uh, you know, a little of both. I guess, what's your take on Donald Trump? Is he overall, is he good or bad for liberty? Uh, well, in some ways, he is good. And I, I'll just openly say that. But in other ways, he's he's quite bad. And I am recalling right now an episode a few days ago 
where I was over, I was on Facebook, I was on David Stockman's page. Now, Stockman served in the Reagan administration. He's no liberal, so-called, in the American sense. And he was being critical of Trump because of spending and tariffs and other kinds of government intervention. And in the comments section, all these Trump people were calling him a liberal. Oh, you must be some liberal professor. Wait, wait, wait a minute, Ronald Reagan's budget director? I mean, do people even know who this is? What is wrong with you? And I thought, I've spent so much time attacking the left, I've forgotten how hopeless these people can be half the time. So they couldn't even process that it's possible to be anti-Trump for non-leftist reasons. Because the leftist reasons for being anti-Trump generally are maddening and ridiculous. And his, his bad temper, you know, or you know, his, let's say, bad manners on Twitter or, you know, or the Russia thing or whatever. I mean, I'm the kind of guy who, if there weren't any Russian collusion, I wish there had been. Because I, frankly, I don't care. I, I have no particular uh, uh, superstition about elections and conferring legitimacy or any of that. I just want peace in the world. I don't care about any of that nonsense. So whatever it takes to get peace in the world, I'll take it. So of all possible things to criticize, that's what these idiots criticize. You can criticize him from the other side. And that's what Stockman was doing. And these people could not even compute that. I don't blame Trump for that. That phenomenon existed for a long time, that it's it's my tribe against your tribe. And if you're against me, then you must belong to the other one. There are only two groups and we can't conceive of a third group. Very disturbing. But the ways in which he's good would be uh, he has put some deregulatory pressure into the economy, which I think is good. He's helped to eviscerate PC, which needs to be eviscerated because the people you see at these universities who are talking about speech codes and safe spaces and microaggressions, these people are training people. They're training up and coming lawyers and uh, politicians who someday will take those ideas and want to implement them countrywide. So libertarians who say, oh, political correctness, that's just a myth invented by the right wing. These people are out to lunch. Political correctness is very real, and the point is it's not going to be confined to the universities, is that you watch the way these people run universities, and you get a glimpse into how they'd like to run you, how they'd like to run America. So anything that can be done to ridicule those people is a net plus. But of course, obviously, there are minuses. Uh, number one is he's very unreliable. Like Even things you think you know where he stands, well, maybe you didn't know where he stood. So on the military – Okay, he said he was going to increase funding to the military. He said he was going to do that. But he also said the Iraq war was a mistake, which took courage because nobody else really wanted to say that. But then, on the other hand, he says he's for America first, but he wants to be involved in all these different – I mean, what's he? which wars is he winding down? He keeps on bombing, and I know I'm giving a much too long answer, but you gave me a huge question in fairness. But like, Please take like the time. Iran deal, for instance – I did an episode of my show on this. The Iran deal is not a bad deal. So for him to be consumed by this is a very bad thing. He should be engaging in his uh, diplomacy with them too. He should say, look, I'm Donald Trump. I'm a businessman. I make deals, all right? Politicians make wars and they dicker around and even their stupid wars don't accomplish anything. I'm a businessman and I make deals. He can get away with that and he should be. On the Federal Reserve, he can go around saying correctly, that, man, this economy is like a whole bunch of bubbles together. But then he'll say, oh, my goodness, the Fed wants to raise interest rates. That's terrible. I want low interest rates. But that's what fuels the bubbles. So it's maddening that you have a guy with an immense opportunity 
who's got the entire establishment, I mean, the entire establishment against him. You've never seen anything like this. And 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 if and he is he does have courage in some situations, like when John McCain died, he's sitting there in the Oval Office, and he just finished some press conference with some Mexican official, and the press all wants to get his comments on John McCain. Now the White House had issued an official statement about the passing of John McCain, but there was this one reporter, I don't know if it was CNN or who it was, who kept saying, uh, "Mr. President, any comment on John McCain, Mr. President." Mr. President, you know, knowing full well that mm-hmm. the whole left liberal world is cheering him as he's as he's badgering the president. And Trump just sits there stone-faced, staring off into the distance, stone-faced, refusing to say, oh, what a wonderful champion of human rights around the world and selfless public servant and maverick he was, because every bit of that is a load of BS. He just refused to say anything. I've never seen anybody stand up to that group of hyenas quite like that. So there is a part of me that cheers that. But when you have that kind of opportunity, you have so much of the country behind you. Yeah, a lot of the country hates you, but a lot of people really love what you're doing. You manage to get in power without owing anything to the establishment. Yet he surrounds himself with establishment people who want to derail everything he wants to do, good and bad. You just make sure to throw your hands up in the air. You know, Donald Trump, he's just such an interesting unique politician, like you've never seen anything like this guy before. And you recently had Scott Adams on your show. And Scott Adams, he's a fascinating guy to listen to. He's the the Dilbert cartoon guy. And I remember when he was talking to you, how he's describing how Trump likes to, you know, create images. And that's what he did with the wall. And it's kind of funny, because that's the same thing. And that's an example I used during the campaign. It's like, this is really kind of genius what he's doing. Because there's a lot of conservatives that it's like a way of showing that you're, you know, you're for national defense and all this. This wall, it's like uh, like having like a blank canvas, kind of like what Obama had. And people just kind of put anything they wanted on that blank canvas. And Donald Trump is just, the things that he's doing, yeah, it's like you've been saying, you, we've never seen this sort of stuff before. I guess with Trump, and I, I guess I should say one other thing, I've gone to a few Trump rallies because I'm, I'm here in Billings, Montana, and he was here trying to get rid of Tester, but that, that didn't work. And just some of the people in the crowd, you know, they would just start yelling, build that wall, build that wall. And it's kind of funny that it's here, people in Montana, they're so big on supporting this wall. And it's like, and we're so far away from the border. Yeah, yeah, I that's guess. right. So the, the wall just <laughs> means something to them it, it beyond the physical manifestation of it. It symbolizes something. It means something to them. Yeah. And plus, I think for some people, they feel like I trust this guy. And if he says this is a problem then I agree with him, it must be a problem. And you described and you mentioned the word bubbles earlier on. I guess so you're the guy, you know, you've written a book called Meltdown where you described what happened in the economy. I guess for listeners out there who are maybe new to Austrian economics, just very briefly, what is the Austrian business cycle? Well, first of all, just the idea of a business cycle is something that we all recognize. It's that the economy seems to move in a cyclical pattern, that you have times where everything is rah-rah and going very strong and unemployment is low and people feel optimistic. And then something seems to happen. And when it happens, nobody really wants to try to figure out what happened. They all just say, oh, this was bound to happen. It's bound to stop every once in a while. No one ever explains, well, why? Why shouldn't we just be prosperous all the time? I I can understand why one part of the economy might suffer 
you know, if there's a supply shock or something. But why should we all just go in the tank all of a sudden? Nobody bothers to answer that. It's we've got to get the government to fix it and whatever. But in other words, we've all lived through business cycles where you, you're up and then you're down and you're up and then you're down. And sometimes the depths are lower than at other times, like 2008. That was a pretty low depth that we reached. So the Austrian economists, they belong to a school of thought called the Austrian school. They've tried to account for why does the economy do this? And I'll, I'll just give you the quick, and I realize this isn't like the scientific explanation, but the quick version would be something like this, that it would be like, imagine you have a lot of work to do and you think, well, I'm going to drink a lot of monster energy drinks so that I can just plow through this work. And it's true that in the short run, you can get a lot of energy doing that. But if that was how you were going to live your life, was just 24 hours a day energy drinks, you know as well as I do what's going to happen. That's not real nourishment. That's a fake nourishment. That just gets you a little bit of energy. It's not all fake. I mean, you do get real energy, but eventually you can't run your body on that. Eventually you're going to crash. And in the same way, an economy has to be based on real things, real prices, real interest rates, real resources, real stuff. And if you have something like the Federal Reserve, that can push interest rates lower than the market wants them to be or than the market believes they should be, then this, in effect, is like an energy drink to the economy because it's not real. It makes it seem like there are suddenly more resources available to be invested. That's what low interest rates are supposed to convey to investors. More resources are available to invest. But if they're artificially pushed down there, there aren't more resources available to invest. It's like your body is engaging in energy that it would expend if it really had food. But eventually it figures out, wait a minute, this isn't food, <laughs> and then it crashes. Well, likewise, the economy gets itself all wrapped up in this, basically this fake stimulus, but eventually it realizes, but wait, there are no extra resources here. And we've actually now gotten ourselves into this impossible configuration because we thought the economy had greater capacity than it really does. We were fooled into this in the same way that the energy drink kind of fools your body into thinking that it's more powerful than it is and the thing crashes. So that would be like my uh, introductory, you never heard this before summary. Yeah, and you know, and that's kind of where we're at today. You know, the Fed, you know, prior to, you know, just recently, these last two years, they've been raising interest rates. But we had interest rates near zero for like 10 years. It's never been that low for that long. You know, so it seemed like the bubble that's going to be popping, this is going to be 2008 is going to look like a child's play. And so it's it's kind of scary. And I know a lot of us Austrians, we like to try to preach and, you know, protect yourself and so forth, you know, and some gold, silver. And I know I like to talk about that sort of stuff on my show. And there's guys out there like Mark Thornton, where they use a, the skyscraper curse to describe, you know, the Austrian business cycle. And I kind of piggybacking off of that, I've kind of discovered my own sort of phenomenon like that. And that's, I guess I call it the cruise ship curse. It's probably not as good as Mark Thornton's, but, you know, just this year, Royal Caribbean, they came out with the largest cruise ship in the world, Symphony of the Seas. And on last year's Contra Cruise, we were on Oasis of the Seas. And at the time that debuted in 2009, that was the largest ship in the world. You know, it takes several years to build a ship. So that thing was probably built, you know, at the peak of the last bubble. Uh, so it's just interesting how we see all this playing out. Uh, and the Austrians, we seem to have the best explanation of what's really going on out there. I guess, let me just try to transition here just a little bit, because you are just a, a fascinating guy where you've you've gone from a, a professor, and then I guess at some point you decided, 
you don't want to have that structured sort of life anymore? Or what was it that led you to become an entrepreneur that, you know, an entrepreneur sort of lifestyle, it's risky. You don't know, you don't have a guaranteed income. You know, you're not working for the man anymore. What led you to that point? Well, I, um, you're right. I mean, I, I was the least entrepreneurial person you could possibly imagine. I wanted to just work in a history department somewhere, uh, which I did for about seven years. And then what happened was the Mises Institute, the greatest place in the world, happened to have something like an opening, let's say, for a resident scholar. And my job description was never really given to me, but it was sort of something like, work on whatever you want, we trust you. So how was I going to turn that down, <laughs> right? I mean, I could go in there. And so already I'm starting to get less structure in my life because even though I had a place that I went nine to five every day, I could direct myself. So I wrote at least a book per year while I was there. And as I looked it over, it's actually slightly more than one book per year. And I pumped out a lot of articles and videos. I mean, I produced a lot of content during the four years that I was there. So that started to get me in the habit of just being self-directed. And then we wound up leaving there for just for family reasons. We needed to find a place that was better for the kids, that worked out for the kids a little bit better than Auburn did. And so then I had no salary coming from anywhere. So it was kind of a necessity as the mother of invention. I had to figure something out at that point because I liked doing what I was doing. I, yeah, I could have gone get a job. I was going to say pumping gas, but where would I have gotten that job these days? But, you know, I could have gotten a job doing whatever. I could have gone into sales or selling insurance or whatever. But I kind of thought, I think I'm pretty decent at what it is that I'm doing already. And so I just kind of tried to freelance for a while, which I did. But then when I realized, well, wait a minute, why don't I produce, this was advice people gave me, produce products. I'll produce things that people seem to like from me. Like they like when I refute what our opponents say, they get a kick out of that. Or when I show what's wrong with X, Y, or Z, or I explain something so that they can understand it better. They kind of go for that. They like that about my books. So then I started doing courses. And then from there, I started working on the Ron Paul homeschool program, which is, you know, obviously it's K through 12 program for students. And it just became one thing after another so that I had enough irons in the fire in terms of avenues that would generate income for me that even though I was freelancing and I had no fixed salary anywhere, I still had stability because even if one or two of these streams drops to zero, I'm still okay. And so I'm always thinking of other avenues just to cover myself. But at the same time, you have to remember that in the age of the internet, I, I wouldn't say this is an absolutely apodictic law to use a Misesian word, but I would say it's a general principle that in order to succeed, you have to learn how to succeed in a world in which everybody's giving things away for free. You know, free eBooks, free video courses. Uh, I mean, you look at all these free apps for your phone that provide all these services. I mean, the alarm clock on your phone is free. I mean, everything's free. Mm -hmm. How do you make it work when everything is free? That's the entrepreneurial challenge. And I actually find that exciting. And so what I've done is mm -hmm. I give a ton of stuff away for free. I mean, I have about 1,300 episodes just of the Tom Woods show alone. And then I've got, I mean, I'm going to be closing in soon on a dozen uh, ebooks that I've given away for free. I got all these videos and I've got a history course I give away for free. It's just one free thing after another, but it all it's all part of a system. You know, it all works. It builds an email list where I might be able to sell you something that if you like the free stuff, maybe you'll like this even more. And it all works out fine. And I don't have to sit on a street corner and beg for money. I don't have to lose my dignity in any way. It all works. And I'm really, really grateful that it works. And it couldn't work 
without uh, a lot of people out there really, really feeling like that what I'm doing is valuable. And that's satisfying. I, I don't feel like I'm just a cog in a machine. I feel like I'm a one-man show who's performing a service that is valued by a lot of people. And you know that helps you get out of bed in the morning sometimes. Well, what I'm about to go do, a lot of people really enjoy, and they're sitting in their cars saying, hey, where's my episode? I better go give it to them. Well, you know, all the stuff that you do crank out, all of this content, uh, do you have some tips out there for some entrepreneurs? Like, how have you become so productive? I mean, is there some sort of system? Is there something that you do? You have some sort of way of doing it that's, or maybe you found a new way that's improved the way you're doing things. That's like, oh, I wish I would have known this when I started. Is there something like that you could oh, offer oh, for a yeah, tip? Oh, yeah, yeah. The tip is screw social media. Now, first of all, that is the tip. <laughs> and and I like social media. I actually do yeah. like it. I, I've been able to keep in touch with really, really great people and meet some great people. And I love, love, love my private Facebook group. And I wouldn't give any of that up. But if you want to build something, that will help you spread the word about what you're doing. Email is a million times more effective than social media. Just the other day, I was mm. trying to build my list by giving away an ebook, and it's a darn good one. This particular one is called Think for Yourself, and the subtitle is um, mm. Professors Who Resisted the Mob, the PC Mob Tell Their Stories. And it's a great mm. collection of professors who, instead of folding and saying, oh, I was so deeply insensitive, and now I will go and be reeducated, they just said, oh, no way, no way, I am not backing down. I've collected a lot of their stories and, and I've had thousands of people download that free ebook. So I posted that on Facebook and I boosted it. I, I used Ads Manager and I paid and I looked and I think I had gotten 25 people to click on it. 25, I don't know, how, and, and then how many of those actually went and subscribed, I don't know, but that's, that's a total waste of my time. And I, and I was thinking to myself, but I have a huge Facebook audience. Yeah, but the thing is when people are on mm -hmm. Facebook, are they in the I'd like to get a free ebook mode? Are they in the I'd no. like to listen to your podcast mode? No, they just want to get some summaries of what's going on in their lives. It's a mismatch. That's the thing. Now, I'm not mm -hmm. saying Facebook ads never right. work. They do work. But compared to email, the difference is dramatic. I mean, I can't, I, hmm. I can't emphasize this enough. This past Black Friday weekend, every Black Friday weekend, I promote, as you know, my libertyclassroom.com website. And I, I did – I, I, I just was curious because – in April of 2017, I celebrated the five-year anniversary of that site, and we were going strong, and I had a big, big, big sale on it on that one day. And on that one day, Facebook said, oh, by the way, there's a problem with your ad account, so we're suspending it for the time being. It was that one day. And then they got to the bottom, and they said, sorry, it was an error on our end. You're restored. Well, okay, but I've only been building anticipation for this day for months, so I, I couldn't do Facebook ads that day. All I had was my email list. And so I thought, well, we're going to see. Because up to that point, I hadn't really known how to use my email list that effectively. So I thought, without Facebook ads, I'm doomed. Okay, I'm not going to give dollar amounts because I think that's creepy and weird and braggarty. But let's just say mm -hmm. I had by far probably one of the two best days I have ever had in my life in terms of sales wow. results. And it had nothing to do with social media whatsoever. It was all email. Email, when people open an email, okay, well, maybe they'll click a link in an email. It's just a mm -hmm. different, and plus, it's a one-to-one -one thing. I mean, even though everybody knows I'm using an email autoresponder service and I'm not actually typing their individual address in <laughs> each time, still, there is a kind right. of personal touch to it. It's in your specific email inbox. 
And it's got that kind of, and I build a connection. I write to people very frequently. And sometimes there are some personal details in there about my kids or whatever, but I'm always delivering some good content in there. And that just, so anyway, so this year I tried both. I'm going to do Facebook ads and I'm going to do the email and I'm going to see what happens. And I think I, I threw in, I think I must've spent about $1,300 on Facebook ads. I mean, not like the world's biggest budget or anything, but just to test it. Mm-hmm. And I still got, you know, I, I earned more than I put in, so I didn't lose any money on the Facebook ads, but it was a trickle. It was like nothing. And then email, which, okay, I have to pay MailChimp every month a, a little bit, but it's, it's trivial. It's about, uh, 20% of what I spent on the Facebook ads uh, campaign. I pay that every month for my list size at, at MailChimp. And the MailChimp sales, I mean, I, I think it was like, um, I don't know, not maybe, maybe 30 times greater, something like that. I don't know, 40 times hmm. greater. So I mean, that's a much longer answer than you want. And by the way, you know what, Justin? It's so funny. I'm I'm no. so I'm on so few podcasts these days, other than my own, <laughs> that I'm I'm giving answers the, the the likes of which I that really make me crazy when I'm the host. You know, like will you give me a chance to get a word in edgewise? <laughs> and now I understand. I understand why the guests want to do this. They really genuinely have a lot to share. <laughs> No, I'm not, I'm, this is exactly what I like because you're the guy with all the answers and I'm trying to get it all out of you and you're just volunteering it. So this is perfect. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. And actually, I'm glad to talk uh, about any of these things. Yeah, no, this stuff all fascinates me and I certainly definitely don't use email like I should. So I'm, I'm picking up and taking some notes here. Uh, and yeah, last year during your Black Friday special, I became a lifetime member of Liberty Classroom. Good. It's fantastic what you're doing over there. And it's, I mean, it's just a great way just to learn on the go. And it's, yeah, it's awesome. I guess kind of, you know, you're a guy, you give a lot of speeches or you used to do more, you know, and you've built up this brand, you know, the Tom Woods brand. And when you go to give a speech, everybody has, okay, this is Tom Woods. Oh man, he's going to kill it. So then from you, it's like, oh crap, that, you know, I got to kill it. You've got this anticipation. So do you have advice for someone to being a peak performer, to operating at the best you possibly can? Because it sucks when you do something, it's like, oh, I know I could do better, but you just bail. It's like, ah. Oh. So I guess, yeah, do you have some advice for, for that? Uh, well, uh, first of all, I'll just tell people that even after hundreds of public appearances, there are times when I, I get nervous before I start. So you shouldn't feel like that's a weakness or there's something wrong with you. Okay. Now, that's not always. Sometimes I'm really just pumped. I can't wait to get up there. It sort of depends on the crowd. I remember speaking at a university where it was a huge auditorium, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people. It was packed no room for it, no, no available seats. And I looked out at the crowd and I just thought, in fact, I called home and I said, I don't want to do this. I really just don't want to do it. And it's partly that in that kind of crowd, you don't even know if people are friendly or unfriendly. If it's a Ron Paul rally, <laughs> you know, hey, I can't get up there fast enough. <laughs> right, but I really, right. frankly, I don't want to fight with people from the podium. You know, I don't want to have to deal with that. As it turns out, I went out there and it went fine. So what often happens is you have to remember that it ends up always, at least in my case, being better than your worst fears make you fear it will be. But in terms of always being at your best and, you know, advice about that, I don't know that I have generic advice that applies across the board to anything other than public speaking. So I can at least say that and people can maybe adapt it to their individual situations. But the, the advice I gave when I was on Bob Murphy's new podcast was – especially when you're doing public speaking, because chances are at some point in your life, everybody listening will have to do that. It could be for school, could be for work, could be for some side interest you have. You may have to speak to an audience. Number one thing to remember as you go up there is nobody is rooting for you to fail. 
Nobody in the audience thinks, well, I went to all this trouble to sit in the audience so that this person would choke up at the podium. I hope that happens. Nobody wants that. They're all cheering for you in the same way that if you're a rock star, nobody wants Paul McCartney to come out and not be able to sing. Right. They want him Mm -hmm. to do well. So they want you to do well. The other thing is, and I, I know that this one is kind of specific to public speaking, but you have to know who your audience is and speak to that audience. If they already know 90% of the topic, then focus on the 10%. If they're totally beginners, you got to start from ground zero. If they're hostile, you got to, I mean, I've, I've spoken to audiences where I felt like it was going to be hostile. Like a couple of times I've spoken at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Well, I didn't even know, I was so out of it when I got there the first time in 2009. I didn't even know that was known as a left liberal campus. But I mean, even by university standards, it's a left liberal campus. And so I, mm-hmm. I thought, oh, my God. And it was a packed house. There wasn't a seat to be found. So I engaged in some self-deprecating humor. I made a couple of remarks about John McCain to get the crowd thinking, oh, OK, this is kind of an interesting guy. And by the end, <laughs> I mean, they asked me some questions, but they were practically eating out of the palm of my hand. I had people write to me the next day saying, yeah. what should I read? So that was because I read the audience and I gave them – I wasn't a coward – but I gave them a talk that was tailored to what they were ready to hear. And then as I went along and I was building up capital with them, I just got more and more hardcore. But basically, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm not a good pep talk sort of guy. But in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, look, you, you have the one lifetime, you know, and you want to be able to look back and say, I did this or I did that. And if you're not going to encourage yourself, if you're not going to be the one that lights the fire under yourself to perform, then it's not going to happen. It's got to be you. Mm. And I think there are a lot of people who hire success coaches and life coaches. But to me, I mean, if that works for you, that's fine. But in a way, that's kind of a cop out, I think, because you should be your own life coach, for heaven's sake, right? I mean, you should be your own success coach. You shouldn't really need an accountability group. I mean, the very idea sounds like you're a child, You've got to grow up and accept adult responsibilities. And when you start thinking that way, I think a, a lot of the results you want to see start to fall. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting. Like I'll go out and sing karaoke sometimes. And it's it's amazing kind of how a crowd or I guess maybe I kind of let it affect me where it seems like it's harder to sing if there's just like a few people around. But if it's just a packed house, it seems like there's a lot more energy in the room. And it's just, then you see, feel like you're doing better. I don't know. It's kind of weird. Oh, I, I agree. And maybe with public speaking, oh, yeah. it's kind of the same it, thing. A, totally. But if it's just a few people, you're just like, I feel oh, like such horrible. an idiot. Why am I doing it's this? It's like eating. I remember the one time I was ever in Vermont, I stopped with a friend at a Chinese restaurant and they had no music playing. Now, you know, most restaurants, there's at least quiet music in the background. And you may wonder why that is like at Walmart, even at a department store. And the reason is... Mm-hmm. Try to experience it without the music, and then you suddenly get it. You feel like, oh, I better be quiet. And so <laughs> there were a few parties in the room. You know, I was just with one other person, but we were all whispering like this. We all had to talk like this because it seemed like you could, you could hear a pin drop in the place, whereas the music kind of gives you permission to talk. It's weird. Without it, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And so likewise, speaking to a room, a small room of people, you can also hear that pin drop proverbially, you know, and it, you just, you start to lose your self-confidence. You're right. This would be other advice I'd give. Yeah. For singers and for uh, public speakers. And again, I also told this to Bob, the bigger the crowd, the easier it is to do it. I mean, I know that mm-hmm. seems weird, but, but when you get up in front of 10 people, they're going to be sitting there with their arms folded. You'll be lucky to get a laugh at your jokes. You'll be lucky. 
because they all everybody feels weird laughing because it's like they're in the Chinese restaurant with no music in the background. Nobody wants to no. be that loud laugher, so they all just sit there. But the bigger the crowd is, the more energy there is, the more likely there is to be somebody who just laughs immediately, which thereby gives people instant permission to start laughing. And then mm -hmm. the larger the crowd is, the more likely you get applause during the speech, and that generates further energy. So the easiest speech I ever gave was in front of thousands of people at the Target Center in Minneapolis for Ron Paul's rally for the Republic because they were eating out of the palm of my hand. I just had to get up there and give you know, a pretty good speech, but they were just ready for anything. They were excited to be there. They were thrilled to see so many other people. That gave them energy. It gave me energy. So don't fear the big crowd. The big crowd is going to be the most exciting day of your life. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's, and I guess you want to think about what you're talking about with music playing in the background, that sort of thing. It's the same thing with movies. If you actually, if you pictured that the movies didn't have any music in the background, be like, man, this kind of sucks. It, it's amazing how much a background noise just adds to something. You don't even realize it. I always get fascinated just by like how little things affect stuff that most people won't even think to realize it. And yeah, you kind of really just nailed it there with that answer. Okay. I guess I know you have to go, but let's just hurry and talk about upcoming Contra Cruz. I've been to all three. Uh, you're going to Alaska this year. Tell the people about it and why should they go on the Contra Cruise? Well, as Justin said, he's been on all three. Bob Murphy and I co-host a podcast called Contra Krugman, where we refute Paul Krugman's New York Times column every week, uh, which reminds me I, we have to set up our recording for this week. I don't even know what we're talking about this week, but we decided to put on a cruise for listeners of that show and of the Tom Woods show. And the result has been absolutely spectacular. People love this thing. It is so much fun. You can't imagine how mm -hmm. much fun you have. I mean, for, Justin has gone every single time. That is a major <laughs> commitment. So it's going to be Alaska this year, July 5th through the 12th. I am on the case of the cruise company to get the website up. ContraCruise.com is the website. Whether or not they have the 2019 one up yet or not, I don't know. It should be up any second now. But ContraCruise.com is where you can get the details about it. Uh, so yeah, it's Alaska, and it's going to be out of Seattle. And uh, one of our special guests will be Gene Epstein, who is okay. formerly of Barron's, which is a you know, major financial publication in the U.S., and he runs an amazing debating society in New York City. And recently he had a huge debate with a Democratic socialist, and he just crushed this guy, crushed his spirits, crushed his arguments, <laughs> So Gene is going to be an absolutely amazing addition to the Contra Cruise 2019. But you, you meet people who are your lifelong friends. You meet them and you just know, I'm going to be lifelong friends That's with true. these people. They're wonderful. You can't wait to see them again. We have people having mini Contra Cruise reunions during the year. We play games that are unlike any you've ever played. We have music. We have excursions together. We have dinners together. We hang out informally. It's just an absolute blast. You know, it really is. That's why I keep coming back every year. I mean, it's kind of weird to say, but it's like we're like a family coming together. It's a fantastic group of people. Back in January of this year, I went to Singapore. One of the uh, guys who's been on all three cruises also, Johnny, I stayed with him when I was in Singapore. Oh, yeah. And, you know, take, and he was like my little tour guide taking me around. It was, it's just been such an amazing experience. And I just, I just have to go back every year. It's kind of like a drug, I guess. Absolutely. Uh, well, you therefore are one of our three Pete's. So, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So uh, I already know a few couples and uh, individuals who will be of the four-peat category. But I mean, I don't, you know, we'll, we'll have to all see how that shakes out. But I'm really looking mm -hmm. forward to that one. I've never been to Alaska, neither has Bob. And we felt like 
this is a situation where, yeah, people enjoy coming on the Contra Cruise, but they can also at the same time cross something off their bucket list because a lot of people have going to Alaska on their bucket list. And a cruise is a wonderful way to see it. Right. Absolutely. So, Tom, where can people follow you? Where can people see what you got going on? What other content you got going on? What's going on in your world? Well, the best thing to do is to get on my my email list because it is, uh, you think, oh, I don't want any more email. Yeah, that's what you think until you get my emails. And then you say, I like, I can't live without them. And so you can get on my email list by getting one of my free eBooks. And so the one I'll give away this time, the landing page for it is very workmanlike looking, but who cares? The eBook is great. Hmm. It's called Bernie Sanders is Wrong. And Bernie is making noises about possibly running again. But even if he doesn't, his ideas are going to be running again. There's no doubt about that. And this book just smashes him. So you can just go over to, if you can believe it, BernieIsWrong.com. And in the U.S., you can even just text the, believe this or not, you can text the word Bernie to 33444 and you get this book. So that's that's just amazing that that you can text Bernie and the book gets delivered to you. It's an ebook, but it's 150 pages. It's a serious book. It's not one of these 10-page ebooks with 30-point font and whatever. It's it's a real book, and it uh, it'll help you, and you'll enjoy reading it. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it. And actually, let me just say, by the way, uh, you read Bob Murphy's latest book, uh, Contra Krugman, and I, let me just tell you, you did a fantastic job reading that thing. I think only you could do that. Oh, thank so, you. Yeah, for the audiobook version. Yeah, yeah. and. Yeah, the audio given, given that right. Bob's book is, if you look at the paper version, it's like 600 pages long. I didn't know it was going to be that long when I told him I would read it. Uh, <laughs> I would be the narrator. And I, I mean, my gosh, it was like soul crushing <laughs> to get through that. <laughs> what is with this guy? I could not believe what I had agreed to. <laughs> anyway, well, I, I appreciate you having me. Uh, always fun talking. Hey, Tom, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. All right, folks, I got a little something for you if you are a blogger or even better, considering becoming a blogger. I have a few kind of overview videos that give you like the bird's eye overview of what you need to do to have a successful blog. And in particular, if you want to have a blog in a niche that you think you might even be able to monetize, because most people with blogs, you know, if they earn 12 cents, they're happy. Um, And so it gives you ways of, first of all, figuring out whether a particular niche can be monetized or whether you would have to do it just as a labor of love. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you would want to get your expectations right before you get started. And there's a lot of other strategy in these videos, but one point in there is also that it's okay to repel people. In fact, it can even be necessary to repel certain people. And I know that goes against our natural instincts, doesn't it? We think that in order to be successful, we want the whole world to love us, and we want to somehow appeal to the whole world. But that's not really a winning strategy. And so there's some discussion about why instead it's okay to repel people because, well, I don't want to give the whole thing away, but basically in repelling some people, you are attracting some hardcore fans. You can't really please everybody. And if you try, you're going to have, in general, lackluster results. So that's a little bit of advice. But anyway, there's some good stuff in these uh, videos that, I've made available to you, and they don't cost you anything. You can go pick them up at tomwoods.com slash blog strategy. tomwoods.com slash blog strategy. You guys know the internet well enough for me not to have to tell you that's all one word. You don't put a space when you do that. tomwoods.com slash blog strategy. Okay, 
I'm all done talking. Thanks, everybody, so much for listening. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.